You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello, Blogging Heads Nation. It's the Spring Break Handoff Edition. Coming to you live from Fort Lauderdale on day one of vacation and still kind of tense, I got to be honest with you. It's Heather Herbert of New America and New York Magazine. And I am Daniel Dresner of uh, the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and uh, the Washington Post. Uh, also coming to the end of my spring break uh, at Tufts, but I've been doing it traveling to places like Oslo and South Carolina. So my travels are done, thankfully. Um, but nonetheless, I'm also equally stressed out. And I think, you know, the reason that both of us are stressed out is that we, since we studied foreign policy for a living, it hasn't been a slow month for us. Um, you know, in particular, there's been a fair amount of transition going on uh, within the Trump administration. I believe a month ago, Gary Cohn was still on the na- you know, running the National Economic Council. Rex Tillerson was the secretary of state and H.R. McMaster was the national security advisor. Um, and none and of those- a and- month ago, we had no tariff. We had no tariff war with China and no summit with North Korea. Just oh, by yes. the way. So, you know, th- to be very, very technical about this, a lot of shit has gone down, and we need to talk about it. Um, so, uh, you know, it's been a while since Strasbourg talked, but I think we can uh, hopefully address all these issues. And I think uh, we're going to address each of these staff changes in turn and then talk about the sort of larger uh, question. So the first one uh, was Gary Cohn's departure. Um, and Gary Cohn, uh, you know, left, I think, in no small part because – the Trump administration or, or President Trump was clearly going to go in a direction on the steel tariffs uh, that Gary Cohn did not want to see uh, done. Um, Gary Cohn is clearly much more of an ardent uh, advocate of trade liberalization than President Trump is. In this case, Trump seemed to side with his Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, and uh, White House advisor, Peter Navarro, uh, believing that somehow protection affords or, or believing as in his pithy way of stating it, that trade wars are good and easy to win. Um, so Heather, what is your take on this particular move? This is where it actually really turns out in our favor that we're having this conversation as far after the event as we have, because I looking, you know, the cone thing actually looks a little different as the start of the sort of the March massacre, um, than it did as a, as a standalone event. And when Mm. cone announced that he was going to step down, there was a lot of snark um, I know viewers are shocked that there was snark around the Trump administration cabinet appointments, but there was a lot of snark about this being a man who um, had no principles or didn't discover any any principal problems yeah. when our president was referring to um, anti-Semites and people who um, sort of attacked peaceful counter-protesters and killed one in Charlottesville as very fine people, but his principles were troubled to the point of no return by by losing losing a fight over tariffs, which, you know, okay, people's principles are different. Um, But what I wonder, um, setting an entirely aside assumption that anybody has any principles anymore, um, because I find myself continually disappointed on that front, but did Cohn understand something that the rest of us didn't understand at the time that sort of the floodgates had opened? That's a, I mean, to be fair, I think other people did understand that. I mean, what everyone who's shocked now was not actually paying attention to a lot of the press coverage in the end of December and early January, particularly the moment after the tax bill passed. So the tax bill is to 
the Trump administration's credit, and I put that in air quotes, that is their one significant legislative achievement. Um, and it is a, you know, major piece of, it's the most major, uh, revision of tax law since the 1986, uh, law, you can argue. And then immediately after that, there were a fair number of stories, you know, pretty good, well, you know, source stories by, by quality journalists basically suggesting you have not begun to see the purge, you know, that, that essentially, the after a year, Trump, what you know, White House officials were exhausted. Trump wanted to feel, you know, less shackled. There was going to be change in the offing. And, yeah, you can argue that that in some ways the, the surprise isn't that it happened. That it's that it took so long. I think the Rob Porter scandal probably also um, accelerated this in, in Trump's mind. Um, but, yeah, Gary Cohn was clearly the, the, the first out the door. And I think, you know, from his perspective, I'm assuming, you know, the, the report suggested that he – Stayed on for the tax bill. He, um, indeed, this is where Porter's departure clearly affected things because apparently Porter was running the paper, you know, process when it came to the tax stuff, or sorry, when it came to the trade stuff. And there was evidence that Porter had sidelined people like Peter Navarro and, and Wilbur Ross on this and that that frustrated Trump. And so when Porter left, the process has clearly gotten more chaotic and Trump has continued to go with his gut instincts on this. And on trade, this is where he actually has sort of consistent gut instincts. They're awful gut instincts, but they're instincts in which he sort of decides, no, I'm just going to go with protection. That's the way I'm going to do this. So, you know, it's not shocking that Cohn decided to leave given that, because what would have been the upside of staying at that point? Well, can we pause and point out that um, what has come out of the, the trade and tariff policy is not what you would call kind of a, a consistent and well thought through set of tariffs that that carefully advantage particular sectors in the economy to either economic or or political ends in a way that that you can look ahead and say, you know, I don't like how this reshapes the American economy, but you can detect a coherent hand reshaping the American economy. It's 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 not that. No, I mean, in some ways, this is and this is a concern I have going forward, which is there, there are odd ways in which. And I'll be curious about your take about this because, you know, I'm, I'm much more of an ardent free trader than you are. And I know that you have some sympathy to the argument that, that we need to rethink trade policy as, uh, you know, in terms of its effects on, on domestic society. There's a way in which Trump, anything that Trump touches actually causes such a fierce negative reaction that even people who would ordinarily sympathize with what he wants to do wind up being put in a very awkward position. And so on trade, Trump has come out as a, a protectionist. But if you take a look at the public opinion polling on this, Americans have actually become much more ardent free traders over the last 18 months. Um, I, I suspect part of that is just sheer, sheer partisanship, which is if Trump is in favor of something, an awful lot of Americans will oppose it. But I also think it's because, as you say, the way Trump has done this has been so inept and non-strategic um, that even, you know, you even people like Danny Roderick or Paul Krugman, who are ordinarily critical of sort of dominant free trade consensus, look at this and say, yeah, I can't defend this. This is idiotic. Um, you know, you saw that with the steel tariffs. You're seeing that to a lesser extent, but I think it's still true on, on the um, on the China tariffs. You know, you're seeing it on, on withdrawal from TPP and on, um, on the renegotiation of NAFTA. And so weirdly, on the one hand, I think, you know, as someone who's a free trader, I should be happy about this, that, you know, the, the country is moving in my direction. And yet the thing that I am desperately concerned about going forward is that trade policy is now essentially become an act of political identity rather than an act of economic policy, which is, go ahead. Sorry. God forbid that we get off track and actually talk substance for a little while um, on a day where there's so much politics to cover. 
But um, so point one, um, there's increased, there's some really interesting academic evidence that what drives people's views on um, some of the issues around trade is really, it's much less their own personal experience with, say, outsourcing or job yeah. loss or retraining. And it's much more their experience of um, and comfort with cultural diversity and cultural mm -hmm. change. And so it, it turns out that all the conversations that we have about trade aren't really about what, you know, sort of the, the folks in the master's level econ classes think we're talking about when we when we think about trade. So so there's that. Then I think the other just sort of point is if you think about sort of elite opinion on this in, in concentric circles. So there's there's a, a circle, a non-trivial circle of, of actors who thought it was time to use tariffs in some way to try to push back on what China was doing. Mm -hmm. And even among those people, right. very few of them are happy with the way that the administration yeah. put some countries in, put some countries out, picked the products it has picked. It's It's far from clear, even for those folks. Then you have a circle sort of next out from that. And this is where I would put um, Danny Roderick or Krugman or myself in a sort of mm -hmm. different level from, you know, prize winning. Hey, economists. don't sell yourself short. Okay. Um, but, um, but that, that um, it's not necessarily the case that old style tariffs are the answer, but um trade with China is profoundly imbalanced in a way that's not healthy. And there does need to be a reaction, which makes China uncomfortable. Um, Jen Harris at Brookings um, in a collection of essays I just curated at Democracy Journal. Thank you Did for you giving now? the opening to mention that. Um, Jen argues that we're really leaving a lot of tools on the floor and that we are sort of old fashionedly indulging in kind of tit for tat tariffs posing, where instead she says, you don't think about it in a purely symmetric way. You think about what do we most value and what does China most value or any adversary. So so then there's there's another circle of people who, who wouldn't describe themselves as being anti-free trade, but who would say, because of the realities of the world, the way it operates, you know, what China yeah. does is, again, not free trade the way you learn it in a textbook. Um, and then there's kind of an outer circle that says either sort of because we don't want to fight with China or because the system is actually serving our particular corporate or shareholder interests quite well, um, or because anything you do with it will make it worse in really problematic ways, which, by the way, I think is a non-trivial argument. Um, please don't do anything. So what, what, what the administration has done in the last month, nobody in any of those circles, the people who feel good are people who say it was time to punch something and we punched something. Right. Even though we punched in the wrong direction. So, I mean, I live it this way. The, the, a few rejoinders to that. The first is, is that while I'm familiar with the literature you're talking about with respect to the notion that people view trade almost in a, uh, a question of, uh, sense of political identity, uh, particularly work by Alexander Gustinger, um, and also I think Ed Mansfield and, and Diana Mutz, it's, it's really interesting work. And I'm worried that that's the way in which things are moving. I do question there's still an economic component to this, and that's a really large one. So all I, <laughs> yes. I, 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 I want to I'm worried that it's becoming an identity debate. I don't think we're there yet. But if we do get there and trade winds up being 
the same kind of debates as we have about immigration, then I'm really genuinely worried because it's it, that's not going to be a productive. Uh, we're we're going to have even stupider policies. Is my point on that? Um, well, that second, seems like a great. Sorry, but but like let's remember that when we start talking about our new Secretary of State. Yeah. Uh, the second thing is that. Um, uh, uh, oh God, I lost track of thought. Um, the second thing I was talking about. You should never go on vacation, people. This is what happens. This is what happens. Uh, oh, the second thing is that um, is that in some ways, and I wrote about this back in 2016, and I still think it's true that that we're still debating in some ways the China shock and the effects of the China shock on the United States. But it is also worth pointing out that the China shock ended, or rather, it already happened. This is something that stopped. You know, this was something that was dramatic from about 2000 to 2006. And really, the effects since then have actually been relatively modest. Neil Irwin has a great column in The New York Times making this point that really, in some ways, this was a one time shock in which I think free traders should acknowledge that they dramatically underestimated the effects of China's integration in the global economy um, and the sort of massive redistribution that that created. That is a fair point. But on the other hand, in some ways, I feel like the debates we're having now are kind of arrested into that thing that happened 10 years ago, which is almost in some ways out of date. And so in some ways, I think that also has warped the debate. But the third thing, and this this will key us to the next conversation, is that in some ways the most disturbing element about all of this in terms of trade is what it reveals about Trump um, in that clearly we, we know from, you know, December onward that essentially – the free traders within, you know, Trump's ca- uh, administration, namely Steve Mnuchin, um, is it Mnuchin or Mnuchin? I can never remember. Mnuchin. Mnuchin and Gary Cohn and others argued, if you mess with trade, you will cripple your stock market, you know, uh, rise. Which, frankly, I thought was a dumb argument because it's not obvious that, that was going to take place. But I understand why they made that argument because that was actually something that Trump cared about. Um, and this gives rise to an interesting question of how, why Trump feels so liberated now and why Trump is, has shuffled through his cabinet, which is, so he announced the steel tariffs and it wasn't like the stock market loved it, but the stock market hasn't, you know, cratered either. It hasn't, you know, gone into crash mode, although yes, it, two days ago it, it did drop precipitously, but even there, we're still not in a bear market yet. It's only dropped, uh, 10 or 11 from its, from its peak and you need to be 20%. Um, Although we'll see how the markets react to some of the other hiring moves. Uh, but um, that said, I think Trump has such a short attention span that weirdly, if he makes a decision and the result isn't immediately calamitous, it convinces Trump that he's bulletproof. Um, which, again, is not to say that this is any – I don't mean to say the tariffs are a great idea. They're not. But because the real-world effects aren't immediate – Trump thinks that he has violated conventional wisdom. All these people warned him that the worst thing was going to happen. The worst thing hasn't happened. And therefore, he feels emboldened to do even more crazy stuff. You know, I got to say, the man has a non-trivial amount of justification for believing that he is, in fact, bulletproof. Because the number of things that have happened to him that should have ended the career of, of somebody and, and haven't. Well, um, I mean... This- yeah, although it's worth remembering. I mean, in some ways, we'll, we'll, we should return to this in November, I think, because the, the simple fact is, yes, he got elected president with three million fewer votes than the other person. And really, you know, if you think about it, what's happened to this first year, yes, he's gotten a, a few accomplishments, not a lot. Um, and he's also brought about the you know, special counsel investigation and various, you know, litigation. 
And yeah, he hasn't paid the political price because he's not up for re-election yet. So, you know, if you're a president and you're this unpopular, doesn't necessarily mean all that much. Um, so I want to, you know, in some ways, I think the reason why the midterms matter is that they're actually a political signal that even someone like Trump would respond to. Yeah, we'll see. That that is is interesting to me. The extent to which sort of our conventional political analysis does or doesn't compass his world. That I just want to make one last comment here, which is your point, I think, is a really, really good one, that um, one of the reasons that we're having the trade and economy fights that we are is that the only person who has acknowledged in in a large public way the 2000 to 2006, but the fact that there was a China shock is Trump. And, you know, that um, and I think we're going to I, the piece I wrote in the Democracy Journal collection is about how we need to shift away from the paradigm of how trade and security policy work together and what it means to be secure that we have blithely been putting forward to Americans, you know, throughout the post-Cold War and post-post-Cold War. And there was never a point at which people acknowledged, yeah, hey, our theory about China, that really didn't work out the way we said it would. And number one, we need to fix the effects of that. And number two, we need to have a different theory about what we're doing with trade as a component of of security policy. Um, I mean, which is a whole other conversation between you and me. Um, it is also interesting to think about how all of this played out for, for Rex Tillerson, who was certainly not someone who was interested in tariff barriers of any kind. No, this is a nice segue to human speed bump, Rex Tillerson. Um, who, uh, was it, I don't even remember now, was it 10 days ago? I think was, uh, was let go as, uh, you know, Secretary of State by tweet. Um, and, uh, there were a whole sorts of stories about how, uh, John Kelly informed him of this. And I really must congratulate the Trump White House because I, I think it's safe to say I have not been Rex Tillerson's greatest fan while he was Secretary of State. I think I called for his resignation back in August. And yet the way in which he was let go actually made me feel sorry for Rex Tillerson, which I didn't think was possible. Um, but nonetheless, uh, Rex Tillerson uh, was uh, unceremoniously fired. Uh, Mike Pompeo will be, uh, assuming he gets through the Senate, uh, his replacement. And Gina Haspel, who was Pompeo's deputy at CIA, has been nominated to be CIA director. Um, I, I, I have to say, I've been intrigued by the reactions to Tillerson's firing, which were different um, – than Gary Cohn, because essentially a lot of people who were not necessarily Tillerson's biggest fans, nonetheless, were very upset about this. The logic being that, well, while Tillerson, you know, was not a great secretary of state, he had good foreign policy instincts or at least better foreign policy instincts than the president. And since, <coughs> excuse me, since uh, he's replacing him with Mike Pompeo, who is known um, as much more of a hawk. Uh, that this is a, a dark day for uh, American foreign policy. Um, I have my own thoughts on this, but, but Heather, I will defer to you. Yeah, I mean, first, it, um, you know, Tillerson was a public, a loud and public advocate of um, keeping the Iran deal in place. Tillerson was a loud and public, if sometimes perhaps accidental, advocate of negotiations with North Korea. Um, Tillerson, um, when pushed hard, could be gotten to say that um, neo-Nazis were bad and common decency was good. Um, Tillerson did, um, I mean, although Tillerson was perhaps considerably cozier with the Saudis than might have been ideal for a Secretary of State, 
um, Tillerson did not go out of his way to bash Islam or American Muslims or to point to, um, to, to sort of heighten divisions within our own society as part of his approach to, to national security. And um, there's, on the one hand, there's reason to, to believe that Pompeo personally will do the opposite of, of all of those things, um, which is an aspect of concern. On the other hand, um, Tillerson, as you say, was not particularly effective. So it's, it's a fair question, I think, to say, you know, yes, someone with views that the um, center and left of center foreign policy establishment found more comfortable. Um, but how much difference will that actually make? Right. So this is where I guess I... I firmly come down onto the position that it was better it, that actually Pompeo will be better at Secretary of State than Tillerson, um, which even though Tillerson is far closer to my relatively centrist views than I, I believe Pompeo is for a couple of reasons. First, and this raises a really awkward question, but as you say, it's not a coincidence that Cohn and Tillerson were the two Trump officials that actually did publicly speak out on Charlottesville. You know, Cohn via an interview with the FT and Tillerson. Um, not just reluctantly, I think he made it, he actually like set it up so that he could say on Sunday morning television, the president speaks for himself on this. Yeah, exactly. um, now, on the one hand, it is, you know, it, as someone who also agrees with them on this, it is very personally gratifying to hear people, you know, in the administration publicly disagree with the president on these kinds of things. On the other hand, as you and I both know, even if even a normal presidency, but particularly with this one, Having public disagreements with the president is, generally speaking, not thought to be an effective way of being an advocate for your department or being an advocate for your policy views. And so there's an interesting contrast between people like Tillerson and and Cohn and, let's say, someone like Jim Mattis, um, who is generally thought to be now the last man standing when it comes to the sort of foreign policy establishment. Mattis has been extremely circumspect in speaking to the press. Um, he is certainly, you know, and has defended the president at various times, um, has not publicly criticized the president at all. Um, and I am sure that is extremely frustrating to many of our colleagues. On the other hand, Mattis ain't fired. Um, and it's clear that the president loves Mattis. And it's also very clear that Mattis has actually influenced Trump in a variety of ways on policies that Trump might have not otherwise have gone for. Particularly, I think the most obvious one and immediate one was Mattis's position on torture. Um, which really did cause Trump to do a 180 from his campaign to when he became uh, president. But there are other areas I think you can argue where where Trump has deferred to Mattis. And this leads to a relatively frustrating perspective from outsiders, which is essentially we want to see officials publicly disagree with Trump. That, however, almost guarantees their irrelevance. Um, and this is where I, I suppose I am moderately or, or cautiously optimistic about Pompeo as opposed to some of the other changes. It's not that I agree with Pompeo on a lot of things. It, it's two things. It's first, my understanding is that Pompeo's time at the CIA was generally thought to be relatively competent. Um, you know, it wasn't thought to be awful that he got along reasonably well with the rank and file there. Um, and that's significant because there have certainly been other CIA directors that ran that did not have that issue uh, or that did have that issue and were in some ways ideologically uh, – less problematic. This gives rise to the interesting question of whether Pompeo will actually listen to people in the building at state um, and sort of learn from them or not. The second and more important thing is that Trump trusts Pompeo. Um, and in some ways, that trust has been built up from a year of Pompeo delivering the, P the presidential daily brief to Trump. Um, clearly, uh, Trump doesn't read, so he actually listens to Pompeo, presumably a little more than, than another president might listen 
to their CIA director. And so it raises the possibility that even though Pompeo is a hawk, he's not insane. And so therefore, might he actually – and I know this is a gradation kind of thing, but but still, it's possible that Pompeo, even though as Secretary of State will, will lead to a more hawkish foreign policy, it will also put a hard constraint on some of the really stupid – ideas that might come out there that someone like a Rex Tillerson could not have stopped anyway. So side note on Mattis, it was very interesting that at the end of this crazy week we've just had Mattis appeared with the president for the president to sign the omnibus that the president sort of sent out contradictory signals on all morning, speaking of terrible staff work. And then, um, and then while he signed complained bitterly about, said that he would never sign again um, and called for a line item veto, which has been found to be unconstitutional. Mattis, of course, got the thing he wanted out of that, which was a a significant bump in um, defense defense spending. I believe the Um, word was historic. That would that convince Trump, apparently. uh, Yeah, that is not actually true by any measure, except the nominal. Just 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 just. Say it's historic and, and don't know. I take your point. Well, although it is, I mean, it is an interesting point because aside from the nominal bump in defense spending, um, the Democratic policy priorities sort of won the day in the yeah. omnibus. So it was it was an odd moment for everybody. And then um, at some at eight thirty last night, after you know most of us had retired to our homes and our and our second or third martini. Um, the Pentagon issued a policy which basically acquiesces to Trump's tweeted yeah. demand to to end transgender military service. And it sort of has a fig leaf of seeming like folks who are in now can stay in, but they can only stay in if they don't require medical care, which, of right. course, puts them on a different standard from everybody yeah. else who's allowed to stay in the service if you can still deploy. So mm-hmm. so just um, I think we can. um we can over, you know, you, you made the case for Mattis and um, I'm very happy to have someone at the helm who doesn't think a preemptive war with North Korea is a good idea or a preventive war with North Korea. But I do think it's, it's important not to um, not to make Mattis's pedestal bigger than it is. No, um, it, but this is a problem, which is to say, I mean, you, there's issues involving Mattis. I mean, you're right that he rolled on. He eventually rolled on the transgender thing. There's this there's scandal involving him and Theranos, I believe, that this sort of one of these things that, that I, I'm not even sure what's going on. But the, the, the point is, is that weirdly, because of the other alternatives, no one is going to talk. You're right. You don't want to elevate the, the pedestal on Mattis. And I certainly acknowledge all the things you're saying. On the other hand, then the counter to that is, well, that's fine, but what do you do if you fire Mattis? Or if Mattis is gone, who winds up becoming Secretary of Defense? Well, at some level, frankly, um, and this is where we get to pick on you because you have at times in your life identified as a Republican, although this I... This is true. Um, but, you know, all of this, oh, Mattis will take care of it. Oh, Pompeo won't be crazy. Um, I mean, this is all because we have a commander in chief who behaves in ways that we find um, not acceptable, whether it is taking real pleasure in humiliating your secretary of state, whether it is um, accepting an offer of a summit with North Korea without even checking with your national security advisor, um, you know, whether it is announcing three different tariff policies in, in three days. And, you know, it is not up to Mattis or anybody else to fix this problem. It is up to the people in the party that controls who, you know, whether the president stays in office and how he governs, that's how our system is is set up to work. So there is a way that this whole conversation avoids 
I mean, which is like, fine, I can go and yell that on the hotel balcony as long as I want. And as long as Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell count votes the way they count votes, then we are where we are and we got to hope for the best. Well, I would say to extend to that, it's not just the party. It's also voters. I mean, this is why, again, I really (coughs) you (coughs) these midterm elections might in some ways be just as important as a foreign policy signal as they are in our domestic world. Which is, as someone who was in Oslo or has been uh, paramount overseas, it's worth remembering that when when George W. Bush was president, um, he wasn't obviously a terribly popular president overseas. That that's not a shock. But uh, foreign attitudes about Americans and the United States as a country stayed relatively robust right until 2004, when George W. Bush got reelected, and then there was a shift because that you know. Trump get, Bush getting elected in 2000, that was almost a fluky thing or, or what have you, um, and he, he didn't get a, a majority of the population. But getting reelected in 2004, that jolted people. And so it'll be interesting to see the extent to which both the midterm elections and the 2020 election, you know, leads to respond. You know, basically what happens then sends signals to the rest of the world about what direction is America going in? Uh, because it would be safe to say there there's a lot of there's simultaneously concern about it. And also a belief that the United States is frittering away whatever remaining advantages it possesses um, in the world. So that on the you know, I'll just leave it to that on 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 that. I'll offer point. I'll offer two quick examples of that um, before we start start our, our transition to, to yeah. Gina, Has- Gina Haspel and John Bolton that you've all been waiting for. But <laughs> you know, this past week there was a G20 meeting. And again, if you're a person who thinks that we should try to do anything about um, economic imbalances with China, one of the things that you generally think we should do is try to marshal all of the countries whose markets China affects in this way to act together. Um, because obviously, if China can pick off markets one or two at a time, um, you know, then even a country as big as the U.S., the effect of anything we do is lessened. And there was this wonderful reporting in The Wall Street Journal of all places, and I'm going to try to quote it directly, which was... Um, F, um, demand in the room to discuss U.S. economic policies prevented the meeting from ever taking up the question of China's economic policy. Uh, and if that's not the definition of own goal, I don't know what is. Um, the second thing, which is I need unfolding. I find room on my desk to bang my head against head. it. No, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so the other sort of interesting thing was, you know, before um, before Tillerson had even given his final farewell statement, um, one of his um, senior staff folks, um, Brian Hook, was off to Europe to meet with our partners in the Iran deal to explain to them what it is that the administration wants them to, to sign up to in exchange for keeping the Iran deal. Um, and the reporting that came out of that was also very interesting in that, um, on the one hand, the Europeans listened very politely were clearly somewhat taken aback by the circumstances um, under which the meeting was taking place and said, yeah, you know, sure, we worry about the Iranian missiles, too. And, you know, if you guys can, you know, come up with some some measures on the missiles that will do anything, <laughs> we're, we're happy to listen to you on that. Um, at the same time, the meeting also gave the Iranians the opportunity to sort of ratchet up their threats and rhetoric, which is really, again, kind of the opposite of, to me, what a smart diplomatic approach would do. So um, Pompeo, who has been one of the louder voices for keeping, yeah. I mean, he was a loud voice against the deal before there was right. a deal. And he doesn't seem to be one of the people who's come around to the idea that even if it's not the deal, you would have negotiated, we're better off with it than no deal. 
um, is now going to be faced with this situation where um, Washington could very easily end up in a circumstance where the deal is broken and it owns the brokenness of the deal. And again, Trump's base won't necessarily care about that, but everyone else will care about it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. All right. Let's segue into the big. Uh, we need to segue into the big thing because we're running out of time, which is the. Right. Uh, I want to. Uh, I want to not pass over Gina Haspel, however, um, okay, because Pom- Pompeo's move. So just super quick, Pompeo's move um, does a couple of things. So it opens up a slot at the CIA. Uh, once upon a time, lots of people thought that slot belonged to Tom Cotton, um, but um, I think nobody thinks that the Republicans really need another contested Senate race right now. Which, um, to your point about the importance of the midterms, um, I think it's arguable if if Connor Lamb had not pulled out that House seat mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania, things might have gone differently. But um, the Trump administration leapt at the opportunity to appoint a career woman as head of the CIA, a historic first. Um, she also happens to be a woman who nick- has nicknames within the agency like Queen of Torture um, and who was um, during the early Bush administration in the first frantic months and years after 9-11, um, overseeing an interrogation center where uh, torture not only was torture practice, but torture was taped and documented. And then she also oversaw the destruction Destruction. of evidence the torture had taken place. So, um, you know, some of the the big questions that that we've had all along about how will Trump change the bureaucracy? How will the bureaucracy change Trump? um, There's going to be a huge fight over her nomination. And meanwhile, the CIA, which has played an interesting and perhaps problematic role in a democracy in leaking information about the Russia investigation. The CIA is now um, out there like crazy pushing for Haspel to be confirmed. There's a really major PR push coming. And on the one hand, one should be very troubled when apolitical government agencies start doing that. On the other hand, if one cheered when the CIA leaked information about the Russia investigation, one finds oneself in the position of being feeling a little bit hypocritical for saying, oh, we liked it when the CIA was leaking that information. We don't like the CIA trying to promote its own people. So that is going to be overlooked because of all the other crazy that, that we're discussing. But um, potentially very, very long term Im- impacts for how we do security policy and how our democracy functions. I'm just going to agree with all that because uh, I, I confess this is where I haven't paid enough attention to what Haspel actually did um, in the first part of the Bush period. And then also this question of whether um, how is she done as, as as Pompeo's deputy and so forth. All I will all I will add is that and in some ways this is an interesting parallel to our the, I'll segue to Bolton, which is one of the oddities of these changes is that you can say a lot of things about Gina Haspel and John Bolton. What you can't say, in contrast to the initial set of nominees for for uh, Trump's national security team, is that they're extremely experienced. Haspel, you know, yep. is a veteran. You know, Haspel hasn't been an intelligence official for decades. She clearly won't probably know how to run the building. John Bolton, which we let's get to the main course. Uh, you can say a lot of things about John Bolton. John Bolton is qualified by the normal experience standards to be national security advisor. No, um, nobody, no, nobody who throws office equipment at his staff is qualified to be any senior position in government. Sorry, no. Uh, all right, let me rephrase. Bolton has significant amounts of government experience in a way that that some of Trump's other appointees to the foreign policy team did not. 
But now let's get into this, because in some ways, as much as as these other moves rattled people, the Bolton move. Uh, look, I'm not going to lie. I, I think the, the first reaction I had was just a string of expletives um, in terms of, of John Bolton. And, and it's been amusing to watch the initial reaction on social media and then what might be, have been a coordinated uh, counterattack by a variety of columns arguing that, no, John Bolton is an extremely qualified and capable national security advisor. Um, and in some ways, the, the, they're, the concern I have is that as someone who actually read his memoir, Surrender is Not an Option, um, he does not come across as completely stable in that book. Uh, he comes across as a megalomaniac uh, who you know has to constantly survive you know these other people who are ahead you know higher than him in the food chain and nonetheless disagreed with him. People like Condi Rice and and what have you. Um, I am genuinely concerned about what Bolton is going to do as national security advisor for a few reasons. First, um, he's probably more hawkish than Pompeo. He's more hawkish than any of the other uh, advisors. Um, and precisely because he has all of this experience, he's someone that, let's say, a Jim Mattis or even a Mike Pompeo can't necessarily work around. Um, he's stronger than McMaster was, is going to be as national security advisor. Um, and again, the other thing that <coughs> you can say a lot of things about Mike, uh, John Bolton, John Bolton knows bureaucracy. He knows bureaucratic processes. So my hunch is, is that the idea that there's going to be any workaround around Bolton is not going to happen. Furthermore, he's dealing with a policy principal and the president who doesn't know that much, but loves Bolton because Bolton is on television um, and they talk a lot. And so therefore, you know, Bolton is not in the honest role, uh, let's say Brent Scowcroft. Uh, national security advisor clearly he wants to pursue the henry kissinger model of doing this um except he's not really like henry kissinger at all and so uh you know it won't shock me if he guides trump into making decisions that are even more hawkish than what we've seen to date um and so i'm genuinely worried about a war occurring in some part of the globe where there's been a lot of tough talk now talk me off the ledge other well I couldn't resist making a little bit of a counter argument um, in the piece I wrote for New York magazine after, after the initial shock wore off. And um, Bolton, as you say, was notorious, not just for being a very clever bureaucratic operator, but for also always going behind people and always conniving and always having a scheme. And it should be noted that when he was going around to um, Condi Rice, he was working for her. So, yes. you know, nominally one doesn't, do that. Um, in this role, it will be interesting because, of course, even a very powerful national security advisor, um, you know, doesn't control the divisions. Um, so and and so I think that um, and as you as you said, um, Bolton apparently has told people that the person he admires most is Henry Kissinger. Um, and, um, also a friend of his, um, was quoted, your, your fellow post columnist, um, Constanza Stelzenmüller picked this up saying that he thought he had an imperial model. And I <laughs> sort of rattled off a bunch of questions about which empire that was, but, but I, between, um, Bolton's habit of enraging his colleagues and his having a rather large personality. And you, you have to remember one of and Trump's complaints yeah. and ego and one of Trump's complaints about Tillerson was that Tillerson kept going around the world speaking for the United States. 
which, mind you, is what a secretary of state is supposed to do. I mean, but, can you the, just the, the yes, it was just horrible that he would do that as secretary of state. Sorry, but, go ahead. But I think that Bolton will fall victim to imperial overstretch. Um, so, but I think it's a fair it's a, I mean, it, which is not to say that I am not concerned about how many decisions and processes he can put in place before that happens. But um, he's a very combustible guy who doesn't have the reputation of being able to control his temper when it's important to control his temper. And he's done, I think, a really excellent job of charming Trump and sort of reversing Trump's initial hesitations about him to get the job. But let's face and it. And keep his mustache. It's much easier to charm someone on TV than it is to charm someone in a room with them all the time when Jim Mattis is trying to bait you to do something else. So, so I'm, I'm not, and, and I, it's funny, the number of people who, um, sort of read this argument as, as optimism or underestimating him, or my favorite one was, no, no, Heather, you're saying Bolton is dumb and he can't be dumb. He went to Yale. So I'll just leave that there. Um, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I apologize. Uh, no, no, not at all. I was just, uh, I was just basking in that one. But, um, but, um, I, I, we are headed down a slope of combustion. Um, and if, and as you say, all of these changes were telegraphed. So the telegraphing that the president is getting tired of Kelly, we have no reason to believe that's not true. Right. Um, I do think if anybody can, can manage Bolton, it's Kelly. Um, if indeed um, Kelly is replaced with what was the article that appeared this week, a a a, a set of four right. co it, it, chiefs of staff. Yeah, which you when, know the sound the sound you heard the sort of dry crackling sound you heard was John Podesta um, laughing himself to pieces <laughs> over the idea of four co chiefs of staff. But um, Bolton will eventually combust or this group of people will eventually combust themselves. The question is what gets combusted along with it. I think we should just end right there. Actually. Um, that, that, that's a good closing line. So I mean, let me put this way that I, that's the thing I've wondered as well, where they're essentially to what extent Bolton is, you know, part, uh, Hawk and park Scaramucci, um, which is to say how many Scaramucci's will Bolton last, I guess is the interesting question. Um, and it, you, it's possible that you're right. On the other hand, it's also possible, let me put it this way, it, it, it has suddenly become very lonely for Jim Mattis in a way that it wasn't necessarily before. Um, if nothing else, you know, in fact, the only bureaucratic success that Rex Tillerson had as Secretary of State was that he had befriended Jim Mattis. Um, so I, in some ways, I actually think the really interesting question is going to be, who turns out to be the better bureaucratic operator and the better president whisperer, which is someone like Jim Mattis or someone like John Bolton? Um, and, you know, when you put it that way, I have to say, I do get a little more optimistic because I, you know, Mattis is very good at this. Um, and Bolton, as you say, has a more, uh, intemperate streak and it will be interesting to see. I'm, I'm, I'm bemused by your strategy of whether or not Mattis will actually try to goad Bolton into, into the kind of overreach that you're talking about. Um, so yeah, weirdly, I now I'm a little more optimistic. That's an interesting possibility. But Mattis has 50 years of provoking civilians to make asses of themselves, <laughs> and that is how we should close. 
so with that, uh, Heather, thank you very much for agreeing to do this in a, uh, you know, temporarily interrupting your well-earned vacation. And thank you. And I owe our fans an apology because I promised the fans vodka. And as you guys can very clearly oh, see, right. there is no vodka. It is, it is 550. Um, I'm on vacation with my teenage son and I have to set a decent example. So no drinking alone in the hotel room, but we will, um, we will, we will, we will stage a Dresbert and cocktails. Edition. Yes. Yes, maybe during the that that should be the summit edition, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. On that, that note, bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Blogging Heads TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Blogging Heads episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at bloggingheads.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.